0: Hello, and welcome to this Bible study. If this is your first time tuning in, my name is Dave Bigler, and this is Iron Sheep Ministries' expository Bible study going through the book of Exodus. The goal of Iron Sheep Ministries is to help the Christ follower grow in their knowledge of and relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the purpose of our expository Bible studies is to study this book. We believe that this is God's inspired word, basic instructions before leaving earth. And while it is beneficial to just pull out a verse and do a talk on a verse, there is a, a context for topical teaching. The goal of through the Bible teaching, which is what we're doing, is to study the entire book, uh, the enti- every, all 66 books, all chapters, all verses. And so right now we're going through Exodus verse by verse chapter by chapter. And as we go through, the, the point of doing through the Bible studies is to get the full context, the full story of what God would tell us. The goal that we have each study is to first look at the text itself in its present day. What was happening? Who wrote it? Uh, who was the human author that penned it, inspired by the Holy Spirit? Who were they writing to? Who was the original audience? What was happening in that day? And then after that, we look at application in our lives. So today we're going through Exodus chapter 16. We're actually going to pick it up at the very end of 15 and cover all of chapter 16. This is the journey to Sinai. This is both 16 and 17 cover some challenges. There's three grumblings that are going to come from Israel, situations where Israel is in need and they grumble to Moses and Aaron, and Aaron takes it to God. We're going to study two of those today. Then, so that's uh, 16 and 17. Um, And then in chapter 18, we have Jethro, Moses' father-in-law that comes onto the scene. He comes and visits Moses um, and brings Moses' wife and two sons with him. But we see an amazing element of leadership that Jethro uh, helps Moses to bring about for Israel, that results in the Sanhedrin being created, as well as um, all the way to um, the House of Representative Congress that we have in America today, are based on what Moses is gonna do in his leadership of Israel. That's when we get to 18 in a couple of weeks. Uh, And then in chapter 20, we get to the Ten Commandments. Chapter 19 is the arrival at Sinai, and then 20, we're gonna dig into the Ten Commandments. So the next few weeks are gonna be exciting, a lot of stuff to cover, uh, and a lot of stuff to cover today. Every day when I plan um, for these studies, I sit down and I just dig into the scripture. I read it over and over and over, the week leading up to the actual preparation, and just ask God to show me, what do you want me to share? And then I dig in and I follow every single rabbit trail and sometimes I'll sit down at the beginning of the day and I'll be like, okay, this should be a pretty quick prep. And six hours later, I'm halfway through because there's just been so many rabbit trails that I've followed. And that's the point of this study is is that I want to dig in deep and see where everything's connected. And we're going to see that happen several times today. Uh, And... Uh, I'm already going a little longer in this intro than I wanted to, so join me in prayer. We're going to dig into this. Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for what you did in Exodus in bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt, and thank you that we get to study that today and we get to learn from that today. Lord, I pray that you will uh, use me, that I'll be an instrument approved, that you will speak through me. We're to pray that you will open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, so that we would be receptive to whatever it is that you want to teach us today. For all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to break this up. Um, I think I'm only going to do this in two chunks. Uh, we're going to cover Exodus 15 and the last few verses, so 22 through 27. Then I'm going to read all of 16. It's a lot of verses. It's 36 verses, but it really kind of jumps all over the place. There's, there's mention of manna. Um, all the way in verse 4, but then it continues talking about manna uh, throughout. And so rather than try to break it up by chunks, what we'll do is read all of 16 and then we'll go through and hit it point by point. Um, We're going to camp out on two subjects today a little bit longer. One of them is the Sabbath. We have in Exodus 16 the first mention of the Sabbath. It's not the first uh, mention of taking a day of rest, but it's the first use of the word Shabbat um, or Sabbath. Uh, but then we're also going to talk about manna and camp out on that in a little bit uh, and, and what that is. So first, why don't you join me? We're going to read um, verses fi- 22 through 27 of chapter 15. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert with, without finding water, when they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. This is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Okay, let's talk about this. So this is coming right at the end of Moses and Miriam's uh, song. We saw in Exodus 15 uh, an amazing song that praises God for the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's army. Israel is now on the east side of the Red Sea, they, and Pharaoh, uh, his entire military is now annihilated, uh, and... Israel is now free. This begins the uh, journey to Sinai that we will see uh, 16 and 17 will cover that journey. 18 will be a little bit of a pause as we talk about Jethro. And then 19 is when Israel will actually arrive at Mount Sinai, uh, in which the 10 commandments are gonna be given. So that's right on the heels of the um, parting of the Red Sea. Uh, And we have them enter the desert of Shur. Now, the Desert of Shur, what I want to do is actually read from the Expositor's Bible Commentary. This is the abridged version, uh, and I'm going to read um, just a bit from this on the Desert of Shur, as well as the waters of Mara. The Desert of Shur is the whole district ranging from Egypt's northeastern frontier eastward into the northwestern quarter of the Sinai Desert and extending southward to the mountain of Mountains of Sinai. Shur, meaning wall, is mentioned several times in Genesis 16.7, 20 verse 1, and chapter 25 verse 18. Israel's first stop is traditionally placed at Ain Musa, the springs of Moses, a site not mentioned in any biblical text. It was a source of sweet water about 16 to 18 hours' journey north of Marah, which means bitter. Israel's first mentioned stop. This traditional site for crossing the Red Sea is about 10 miles south of the northern end of the Red Sea and about one-half mile inland from the coast. The journey from An Musa to Mara was about 40 miles. At first, the Israelites contended with a stony desert bounded by the deep blue waters of the Gulf of Suez on their right and the mountains chains of El Rahat on their left. After nine more miles, they came into the desert plain called El Rahat. Ati, a white glaring stretch of sand that turned into hilly country with sand dunes rolling out to the coast. But water was nowhere to be found. Mara is usually identified with An Harara, a site several miles inland from the gulf. An Harara's water, our waters are notoriously salty and brackish. So Israel is starting their desert journey. Uh, And the first challenge they come across is the waters that they come to are bitter and undrinkable. Um, The word "mara" literally means bitter. Um, This could perhaps be a reference to the bitterness of Egypt. Um, There's no context for that. This is me putting it there. Um, But it is logical, it is possible that it was a reminder, the bitter water was a reminder of the bitterness of the experience in Exodus. There's two mentions of bitterness or bitter uh, in Exodus that come to mind. Uh, Exodus 1, uh, 14, their labor became bitter. Uh, Pharaoh was bringing down um, really super strong um, decrees on the slave labor and it was bitter. Uh, And then in Exodus 12, 8 is a reference to the bitter herbs that are used as part of the Passover um, celebration. And those bitter herbs are a picture of the bitterness of the experience of the 400 plus years that Israel spent in Egypt. So then you have God showing Moses a piece of wood. This is verse 25. And, you know, in digging... um, some people try to actually explain the type of wood or what might have been in the wood that somehow made this large body of drinking water suddenly able to be palatable able to be drunk um, it actually is reminiscent of a story from second kings second uh, kings two nineteen through 22. Uh, this is a story where elisha uh, comes to a body of water and the people grumble because it also is undrinkable uh, and Elisha follows God's commands and takes and adds some salt to it and the water becomes sweet and becomes drinkable again. In both situations, the focus is not to camp out on the, uh, the, the piece of wood and what um, amazing uh, naturopathic uh, or pharmaceutical or whatever remedies are in the wood itself. The same thing with the, the small amount of salt. The amount of water we're talking about is a vast amount of water that, that is not logical to have a, uh, affected by such a small amount of adding anything. The significance here is God providing. That is the whole point of this is that this is the first instance where the people grumble and understandably they haven't had water, they need water and the water that they come to is not drinkable and God provides. In the same way with Elisha, God provides in that situation, and the salt and the piece of wood is simply the crucible, is simply the thing that God uses in the same way as Moses' staff. Could God have done everything that he did without Moses' staff? Yes, he totally could have, but he chose to work through that instrument. Um, The naturalistic argument that there was somehow something in the salt or something in the wood uh, is stretching, and you're really going to have to search pretty hard for that. Um, Continuing on, a test from the Lord. We have, um, there The Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to a test. If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in His eyes, if you pay attention to His commands and keep all His decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. The way I look at it, and this is kind of a... um, an easy way to think of it is as you as you look at the old testament and the new testament for that matter god's people israel are are newborns they have they have they're basically toddlers that have just started to walk they don't have the full law yet. The law is the, the law of Moses is the five books. We're in the second book, but we're gonna get the official law, which is based on the 10 commandments. But with that, you're also gonna get Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and God's explanations for his people. As a young toddler, if you look at this as an illustration, God is speaking to Israel in very plain commands in the same way that you would to a toddler. Don't do this. Don't touch the wood stove. You'll get burned. Don't do this. Don't throw a rock at your brother. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. Don't lie. Don't give false witness. Don't covet. I mean, I'm going right through the Ten Commandments now, but that's the language that God uses when He's speaking to Israel at this point in time. They're infants. They need that basic instruction in the same way that a toddler does in their faith. And as you look through time at Israel as God's interaction with them, as they develop and grow, more intricacies are put in place. And I would argue that today, in the church age, the age we live in now, we are basically... um, young adults that have been given freedom. And when I say young adults, that makes it sound like uh, high school, but I would argue that we're in our thirties, even 35 to 40 years old where we are now adults. God has taught us through his word. He's instructed us, he's available if we call, if we pick up the phone, but the, the, the instruction is no longer given to us in the same way it was as toddlers. It's a theory. It's a way of looking at how God speaks through his Bible, but I think it makes a lot of sense. And so with that, we see at the very beginning this first walking toddler who's given these basic instructions. If you do this, this will happen, and this is a test that we're going to see. This argument can also be placed for these first three challenges, two of which we're going to look at today, is the water the water, and then we're also gonna look at food, of God putting them in situations where they are in need and they must rely on God and see what they do. We are gonna see, as you look through Exodus, but as you continue on through the whole Old Testament, when you look at Israel, you see God reach out to them and ask them to follow his decrees. This is either through um, the prophets, through the judges, um, and you're going to see situations in which they will follow God's decree and they'll be rewarded for that. Good things will happen, but you're also going to see them go away from God's decree. You're going to see backsliding, and that is a picture for us today. Wow, that was a really long tangent. Uh, I didn't mean to take that much time for it, but that's the idea of this test um, that God is issuing here. Uh, then they came to Elium. Uh, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Um, This is perhaps, so it's, elium is a Hebrew word for uh, palms. So one thing that I did see is this could be a foreshadowing of the promised land. It is a beautiful area. There's 12 different uh, springs of water. There's 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Then you also see 70 palms. Seven is perfection and completion, uh, creation in seven days, the seventh day he rested. We're going to talk about that more, but 70 is an example of completion. So maybe this is a picture of the promised land. Uh, Don't know that. Um, It is located in the valley of Trundel, which is seven miles south of Anhoera. Hawara. I don't know exactly how that's pronounced, and I'm definitely um, butchering that, so I apologize for that. So now we're going to read through all of Exodus 16 and break that open and discuss um, both the Sabbath as well as manna, among other things. So join me. The whole Israelite community set out from Eliam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Eliam and Sinai, in the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when He gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because He has heard your grumbling against Him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9, Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for He has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Verse 19, Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord, so bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you were to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any verse 27 Nevertheless some of the people went out of the 7th day went out on the 7th day to gather it but they found none then the Lord said to Moses how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions bear in mind that the Lord has given you the sabbath that is why on the 6th day he gathered he gives you bread for 2 days everyone is to stay where they are on the 7th day no one is to go out So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Verse 36, an omar is one-tenth of an ephah. So much to cover, so much in this. Let's dig in. So, verse sixteen, excuse me, uh, chapter sixteen, verse one. Um, on the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had come out of Egypt, this is one month to the day uh, since they have come out from Egypt, uh, and we get that from Exodus twelve verse six and Exodus twelve verse thirty one gives us the exact day that they have come out. Now this is the desert of sin. The word sin has nothing to do with the word we call sin. Um, The word sin uh, means clay in Arabic. It means marsh. Uh, It could also be translated a clayey place. So there was uh, the desert of sin was a desert that had clay. I imagine when it was quite wet. Um, it would become a marshland uh, based on the Arabic uh, term. This is a, wil- uh, a region in the wilderness between Elium and Sinai. Um, the, again, the word sin has nothing to do with, it's just a name. Um, it just translates as clay, the desert of clay, basically. Um, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. We see this happen twice where they grumble against Moses and Aaron. Um, for the food and for water. And we see here twice where Moses says, you are not grumbling against us. You are grumbling against God. It's an important thing to keep in mind. This is application. This was um, at that time, Israel was grumbling to Moses and Aaron and blaming Moses and Aaron for the problems. And Moses is saying, look, It's not us, we are simply the voice, the mouthpiece for God. It's it's God that you're grumbling with. The modern day application for this is quite apparent. If a person has an issue with the Bible, they don't have an issue with the pastor who's reading out of the Bible, they have an issue with the Bible itself, they have an issue with God. And it's an important thing to keep in mind when you are listening to somebody speak, when you are listening to a pastor, when you're listening to a teacher, Question yourself if you uh, have issue with what they're sharing, if it's a harsh thing that they're talking about, and you get offended by it. The first thing you need to do is search the Scriptures and see if what they are saying is true. Acts 17.11 is a verse in which Paul is speaking and teaching to the Bereans. The Bereans are a group that are commended by Paul because after Paul teaches them, They go and they search the scriptures themselves to make sure what they are saying is true. So if you get a gut check sometimes when you are hearing a pastor speak, before you immediately uh, critique that pastor, take a look inside and see if you don't actually have an issue with something that's hitting a little too close to home as opposed to that pastor. Now, if you search the scriptures and discover that they are going against what scripture says, the Bible says you should go to them one-on-one. Don't don't bring it out publicly. Don't make a big scene. Just go to them one-on-one and say, hey, last uh, uh, Sunday you gave a message and you said this. And and I looked up in the Bible and it says this and this. and, And I just wanted to know what you meant by that. And how that, that pastor, how that teacher responds will tell you volumes about their character and who they are. Um, it's a very good test to see. And if you then engage in a great dialogue, if they say to you, "No, you know, that's a great question. Um, this is what I interpret it as, but let me dig a little bit deeper. That's a great sign. And then you have a good discussion with them about what the Bible says. If on the other hand, they get very offended and say, well, who are you to question me? I am the authority. I would be very cautious in that situation and pray uh, on if that is a teacher to be listening to. Again, a tangent a little bit long to be going after. Um, Okay, so I'll talk about manna in a second, but let's uh, skip down to verse 10. The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. We saw this introduced in Exodus 13, in which the glory of the Lord shone in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Uh, Exodus 13 neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. The very end of Exodus, we're going to see the glory of the Lord uh, appear in cloud form. Uh, It is an element. It is God's presence. It is an actual thing that happened where God was uh, being present with the people of Israel as a visual sign in that day. But it is an application for us as a reminder uh, that God is always with us. It was a reminder for Israel that God is with them through the desert wanderings, through the trials that they're going through. He is there to help them but it is a, uh, a reminder for us as well that God is always there, always with us, and all we have to do is just turn to Him and just start talking. Prayer is an amazing resource where at any point in time, you can just pray to God either out loud or in your head, and God will hear you and will respond. Continuing on, quail. So the first thing that happens um, is meat in the evening and this is where we have the quail come in Um, this is verse 13 that evening quail came and covered the camp and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp now that gets into manna now the quail itself um, numbers uh, 11 actually has a story of very similar to this where the people of israel are grumbling to the lord And their specific grumble is, we are sick of this manna. We want meat. And the Lord does provide them with meat in the form of quail, but it's a slightly different story and a totally different outcome. Read Numbers 11 to get that uh, story. But it's from that specifically where they say, we are sick and tired of eating this manna, that we know that it's much further Um, into the desert wanderings. They've got 40 years ahead of them. This is at the very beginning. They haven't even tasted what manna is yet, which we'll talk about that in a second. The naturalistic argument. I like to present the naturalistic arguments throughout Exodus. That's what I've been doing with each of the plagues, with each of the the things that hits. Um, The naturalistic argument is When someone says, well, this naturally occurs, and there's two different perspectives on this. One naturalistic argument is is that this wasn't a miracle at all. It was just a natural phenomenon that happened that the religious people attributed to God. The other perspective is is that God chose to use a natural occurrence to bless His people or to use it, such as the Nile turning red, the frogs, etc. Well, the quail, the naturalistic argument, is is that um, the quail, or specifically it is um, uh, feathered fowl, is the actual name, um, they are naturally, um, they migrate. And this time of year is a natural migration pattern, and uh, Israel is camped out on the east side of the Red Sea. So the quail, uh, as a whole, had been traveling um, across the Red Sea, and they get to this place where they are, and they rest, and that's where they they come down and they rest after they're being so exhausted, and the Israelites are simply able to go out and pick them up off the ground because they're so exhausted. I don't know which it is. Is it possible that God chose to use that? Absolutely. Is it also possible that He gathered them from uh, the, the surrounding area and brought them to feed Israel? Yeah, absolutely. The point here, again, God is providing. God is providing. And a point I want to make is that um, some people talk about the God of the Old Testament being so harsh and judgmental and so uh, condemning of the people of Israel and so harsh against them. Uh, but you see here Uh, In both uh, 16 as well as 17, the people are going to complain and grumble. And you notice how quickly God responds. God immediately responds as a father who wants to feed his child. He does put them through the test so that that they are seeking him. But when they ask, he immediately provides. And that is what we see in the water, as well as the water um, being uh, palatable, being made sweet. We see this with the food of the quail, and we're going to see it again with the food of the manna. And next week, we're also going to again see uh, them without water, and God is going to provide water for them. All of these are, are pointing to the fact that God is their daily provider. Okay, manna. Manna, it's, it's mentioned in verse 4, I will rain down bread from heaven. And the word manna is actually mentioned in verse 15 of chapter 16. Verse 15 reads, When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Manna, translated, is what is it? <laughs> I love that. Manna simply is... Uh, what is it, is the word, and I love that that's what they chose uh, to describe it. And I think it's quite appropriate because we don't know what it was. We really can't explain it. The naturalistic argument of this pho- phenomenon, they can't explain it. They can't explain how this this dew somehow um, was there in the morning and they were able to go and, and scrape it up. Um, what do we know about manna? Um, It tastes good, it tastes like honey. Um, We had it mentioned here um, that that it was a, um, in the description of it, um, that it was a white substance uh, similar to coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey, that's verse 31. Um, Other places it mentions that it was uh, sweet and tasted like honey. It was also mentioned as being tasting like olive oil. Uh, What could they do with it? Uh, they could eat it as is, they could grind it, they could mill it, um, they could boil it into a porridge of sorts, they could make millet uh, into a, a grain, so to speak, and make bread out of it. Um, the, the bread of heaven. Um, Numbers eleven eight. 8. The people went around gathering it and then ground it into, uh, in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot or made it in loaves and it tasted like something made with olive oil. Psalm 78:24 uh, calls it the grain from heaven." Uh, we also got that in 164, as I mentioned, uh, the bread from heaven. Um, it is not just to sustain people, but also to remind them uh, that they are alive solely because of God's provision. It is the bread of life. And when you hear that, uh, I was reminded of a Bible verse, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, where is that from? Jesus specifically says that. So we're going to skip around to a few verses here. I've got three of them that I want to reference. The first one that I want to hit and join me, leave a marker here, uh, and join me to go to uh, Matthew chapter 4. We're going to see where Jesus actually says these words, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's Matthew chapter 4. I'll give you a second to get there. So what is the context of this? Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What's the context? Why is Jesus Jesus saying this? Well, let's read. Let's actually pick it up on verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1 of Matthew. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I have a little reference here in my Bible and it references Deuteronomy 8:3. So let's see flip now to Deuteronomy 8:3. I'll give you a second to get there. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. We see here man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's the end of verse 3. So Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy. When he's tempted by the devil, he's hungry. He has been uh, fasting for 40 days, wandering in the desert, and Satan tempts him and says, Hey, if you really are the Son of God, you can look at those stones and you can turn them into bread. You can simply say, turn to bread, and they will turn to bread. And Jesus quotes Scripture he attacks and, and and goes on the offensive with Satan by using the sword of the Spirit, which is our Bible. And he says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. But for context, let's not just read the single verse, but let's actually start on verse 1 of uh, Deuteronomy 8. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then he fed you with manna which you excuse me which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of the lord your clothes did not wear out your feet did not swell during these 40 years know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son so the lord your god disciplines you Jesus is referencing, when he's tempted by Satan, he references this specific verse. And this verse is referencing, it's not about the food. It's not about the, the, the manna itself. It's not about the bread. It's about following God and realizing that everything you have is from the Lord. So Jesus, when he's saying this, he's saying, it, it's not about me being hungry. There are way more important things than being hungry. It is about relying on God and trusting Him to provide. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Lord. In the same way, the manna from heaven was a daily reminder for the young uh, people of God, the toddler, so to speak, of daily reliance and provision from God. There's one other verse that I want to read, uh, and that is John 6, um, where this is Jesus actually talking about manna. So, um, oh yeah, you don't need to leave a marker in Deuteronomy, but do flip with me to John 6, and we're going to pick it up. um, John 6, uh, 31 is we're going to pick it up. Um, This is a conversation that Jesus is having. Um and it's talking about Jesus being the bread of life. You can read. I really would like to take the time and read um, starting on verse 25, but I'm gonna skip ahead uh and start it on verse 29. The work of God is this to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you that you were the one who was sent? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So these people who are questioning Jesus, if he truly is um, to believe in the one he has sent, if he's the one they're supposed to believe, they're asking for a sign. Jesus responds, verse 32, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Verse 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You could continue on. Um, In fact, I recommend that you do, uh, not right now, but do follow up and, and read the rest of John chapter 6. It's a phenomenal chapter. Context for us today the, the Old Testament is full of pictures, and the New Testament brings them to light and gives truth to them. And this is an example of that Jesus is our manna, Jesus is the bread of life that we need daily to be able to survive. In the same way that Israel needed manna every single day, Jesus is our manna. Okay, flipping back. um, Verse 16, we have the word omer. This is a measurement. They talk about taking an omer of manna for each person uh, you have in your tent. Uh, When they measured it out, it was an omer. Each person is allotted an omer. And then when it comes on Saturday when they gather, it's two omers. Uh, Then we have verse 36. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. We'll talk about that that verse uh, at the end um, as it relates to an interesting element of why is that there? Why are they explaining to the audience in that day what an omer was in correlation to an ephah? But the note that I have is is that an omar is possibly about three pounds or 1.4 kilograms. Now that does seem like a lot to me. Um, If each person, this is their food for the day, so three pounds actually might not be that much. If it's a dry grain type substance, three pounds of flour is a lot of flour. Uh, Three pounds of cornmeal is a lot of cornmeal, but we don't know. We don't know specifically how much it is, Um, the reference I found simply said that it's roughly three pounds. So an omer is just simply uh, a, a, a measurement. An interesting thing to note, though, on verse 18, they had as much as they needed. So when they would go out, if they gathered too much or if they gathered too little, it was still enough. When they measured it out, each person had gathered an omer. which is an interesting element, uh, and the application of that for today, the Lord gives us everything we need. We have everything we need. Anything we want is above and beyond that. You have everything that you need, and it's provided by God. The air you breathe, the blood going through your veins, life is given to you by God application an interesting illustration is that we see here twice where the people don't believe moses so uh one um they tried to keep more than they needed and it went rotten overnight Uh, and that is a very good illustration is that oftentimes we seek out especially Western culture, especially Western culture with materialism, we seek out way more than we need, way more than we need. And as a result, it begins to rot. That illustration is perfect. So often your wealth begins to own you. When you are seeking after possession for fulfillment, it's never enough. You never have enough. And it begins to rot and rot you from the inside out. God gives you everything that you need. The other instance of the people not believing Moses is as it relates to the Sabbath, is that uh, on the sixth day, they are to gather two omers, a double portion, uh, and it will last two days. But on the seventh day, they are not to gather any. And they still tested. They went out to gather, and there wasn't any manna. That's another sign that this was not some natural occurring thing. This is a spiritual phenomenon. This excuse me, not spiritual, supernatural phenomenon for it to suddenly not be there but be there the other 6 days of the week and on one of the days it lasts 48 hours as opposed to 24 hours. This is God providing. Sabbath Let's talk about the Sabbath. So I'm going to pause our usual through the study to camp out on the Sabbath here. So the first mention of Sabbath is in chapter 16. We get it on verse 23, uh, in which uh, tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And then there is some instruction that is given as far as it relates to what is supposed to happen on the Sabbath. The one instruction that we do get from... Uh, chapter 16 is that people are supposed to rest. It is supposed to be a day of rest. The other element is is that, and it's an interesting one, is, is that everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. Now that doesn't mean that no one is allowed to leave their house. It means it's directly correlated to no one is supposed to go out and gather manna on the Sabbath day itself. This is actually where uh, we get the 2,000 cubits rule, an extra-biblical rule that was added. It's not in the Bible, but it is in uh, Jewish teaching. It is a rabbinic rule, is that on the Sabbath you are only to travel 2,000 cubits. 2,000 cubits is roughly half a mile, and so to this day Practicing Jews uh, in Israel or wherever, if they're still practicing this and holding to this, they will travel no more than half a mile. What else can we learn about the Sabbath? Well, we are going to do a little bit of a survey of the Bible. We're going to hit roughly seven verses that all correlate to the Sabbath. So leave your marker here and join me. We're going to go all the way to Genesis. We're going to go to Genesis. Uh, chapter 2, right at the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. I'll give you a second to get there. Genesis 2 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. An important thing to note, the Jewish seventh day is Saturday. The first day of the week is Sunday. This is why the Jewish Sabbath is Saturday. It's actually from sunset on Friday night to sunset on Saturday night. Let's continue on. I'll talk about modern application for how Jews treat it today in Israel, uh, but let's keep keep flipping through our verses. Now we're going to go back to Exodus, but we're going to skip ahead to the Ten Commandments. Go to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, and the fourth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11, we have the fourth commandment Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." The Sabbath, as it's described here, is meant to be a day of rest. God chose to rest on the seventh day, and that as an example for us, God doesn't need to rest. He doesn't need additional energy. He doesn't need anything. He is fulfilled in and of Himself. He could have done all of creation in six days, and been done, and that's it. But he chose in Genesis to let us know that he rested as an example. If God chose to rest, we should also choose to rest. Additional text. continue on. Go to verse 30, excuse me, chapter 30. Flip over to chapter 30, Exodus 30. Ah, excuse me, Exodus 31. I need to update my note here. It needs to be Exodus 31, sorry, Exodus 31, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Uh, and it continues on. An important thing to note is verse 15, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. It mentions it several times. You can read it for yourself. There's two things that we pull out from this, is that one, it is to be a sign. This is a covenant. This is an agreement between God's people, Israel, and God, and it is a sign of that, that Israel is following the law, following God's covenant, following the fourth commandment, that they do no work on the seventh day and follow the different ordinances. Now, it also adds in that there's a penalty if you do work. And that penalty is very clearly spelled out in verses 12 through 18 several times. The penalty is death. It's quite severe. I'll talk about... um, us not being under the law today in a second. As we continue on, I've got a few more verses to hit. Well, actually, we're not even halfway through the verses. Another one, you don't have to flip there, but just for speed, uh, Exodus 35.3, it adds, uh, it reiterates, um, but also adds an additional element, that fire. You're not supposed to start up a fire on the Sabbath day. Um, But I do want to flip to Deuteronomy chapter five. So Deuteronomy chapter five, Give you a second to get there. Deuteronomy chapter 5 is a restatement of the Ten Commandments. Um, We have it in Exodus. We also have it here in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And the fourth commandment, still the Sabbath. Uh, And if you read from uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 12, we have an outline of the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. But verse 15 I want to hit on. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. This adds an additional element to the Jewish Sabbath. It is meant as a reminder of the Exodus, of God stepping in and saving Israel from their captivity, from their slavery. In Egypt, It is a reminder that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand. It is to remember what God has done. It is for the Israelites as a reminder for what God has done as outlined in Exodus as we've been studying. So to recap, it's a day of rest. As God rested, so shall we. We get that from Genesis 2-3. We also get that from Exodus chapter 20. They're supposed to stay where they are. They're not to go out. That's from Exodus sixteen twenty nine. This is they're supposed to stay with roughly half a mile or one kilometer, two thousand cubits uh, from their residence. Um, interesting. Acts one twelve. As a side note, Acts one twelve references a Sabbath day's walk. It's actually talking about a journey that they made that was a Sabbath day's distance. So we know from that that it was a half a mile or so, but we also know that this ordinance that was outlined in Exodus was taken literally as a distance that you can travel or not travel from your home. Don't work and don't cause any others to work, uh, and then it is a reminder to remember the Lord and what He did for you. So application. Should we follow the Sabbath? Should we follow the fourth commandment? Are we required to? Jews treat the Sabbath as Friday evening to Saturday evening, so it's all day Saturday, basically. Saturday is their holy day. Well, the question really should be, before we ask that, <clears throat> of what we should do, we should look and say, okay, well, what does the New Testament say about the Sabbath? What information can we learn from that? What does Jesus specifically say about it? And we're going to flip to Mark now. So go to Mark chapter 2. This is related to Jesus talking about the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, verse 27. So near the end of chapter 2, Jesus says to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Let's back up and actually pick it up on verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, "Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Picking heads of grain is considered work. They're working on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. The penalty is death. So the Sadducees, excuse me, the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, the Pharisees are getting all, all upset. And Jesus answers, verse 25, he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his uh, companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions." Verse 27, then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. You can read um, chapter three, verse one uh, through six is another story of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And (laughs) the Pharisees getting all upset. Jesus does a miracle and heals a man with a withered hand. And they say, ah, what are you doing? You're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, "Um, He's healed. Which is better to do right, to follow God's commands, to heal, uh, or to not? And in the same way, what Jesus is talking about is that uh, they're starving and they're hungry, and they need food. And Jesus gives an example. He's speaking to the Pharisees who are Jews. So he uses an example of a situation in which David broke a law uh, which he, hungry with his um, military, with his army, were starving. And they took, uh, to feed his soldiers, they took some of the bread that was consecrated bread, which only the high priests were supposed to eat. As an example, the point that Jesus is saying here is critical, is uh, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Meaning, the Sabbath is a day of rest that is of benefit to mankind. It's not that we are required to do it, and because we're required to do it, we do it. We do it because it is of benefit to us. Let's continue on and see where Sabbath is mentioned in the New Testament. We're going to come back uh, at the end when I talk about the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and that we're no longer under the law. Um, I'll hit on that, and that directly correlates to what Jesus is getting at here. The Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. But in the New Testament, we have mention of the Sabbath on Mark 6, verse 2, Luke chapter 4, verse 31, and Sabbath is mentioned 10 times uh, in the book of Acts between chapter 1 and chapter 18. But in every one of those situations, it's in reference to um, either the day of the week or in reference to speaking to Jews on the Sabbath because they gathered in the synagogue uh, on the sabbath day so it is it is never correlated in the new testament um, in these verses to something as a command that the new church the new testament church uh, the christian church is to follow it's never given as that command also interestingly um, paul in acts 18 6 is where paul says he's he's speaking to the jews Um, As you'll remember, when the the command was given to go from Jerusalem to Judea and to all the ends of the world, the gospel spread. The gospel spread from Jerusalem and it spread across the Mediterranean. But when it first was spreading, it was all among Jews. It was all in synagogues. It was all to Jews that the message was given. Jesus was a Jew All of the disciples were Jewish. In fact, every single author of this text, except for one, was Jewish. Luke. Luke is the only Gentile of all of the authors of our Bible. It's entirely written by Jews, and it was originally authored for Jews. It has total application for us today. But when Peter, when Saul, when they first whose name is also Paul, his Gentile name was Paul, his Hebrew name was Saul, when they first were evangelizing, they went to the Jews in the synagogues. But we see here in um, Acts 18.6, Paul or Saul, if he's speaking to the Hebrews, he would have been known as Saul. When he goes to speak to the Gentiles, he's known as Paul. He says here, from now on, I go to the Gentiles. This is the last mention of the Sabbath. It is not mentioned again in the New Testament except for one verse, Colossians 2.16, which let's flip there. We've got two more passages to hit. Colossians 2.16, Colossians 2.16, therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. We'll hit on that again. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. What Paul is saying here in Colossians is if one person calls a day holy, Respect them. If that's what they call their holy day, their Sabbath, that's fine. In the same way, a religious festival, a new moon celebration. Uh, Don't worry about these things. Don't judge people because of this. Um, Then the final one that I want to hit on here is Romans. Uh, Romans 14. Um, It's very similar to what we just read in Colossians. Again, Paul, uh, Romans 14 Verse five through six, one person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat, does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now, this is correlating to um, whether we should eat meat or not at this time. One of the things that was a pagan practice was to sacrifice animals to pagan gods. So the question came up: is that they would sacrifice these animals and then they might sell some of the meat in the market. And so the question was: as a uh, believer. Are we allowed to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? It's being sold in a butcher shop, but we know that when it was first killed, it was sacrificed to an idol. And the point here that Paul is making is, is that if that stumble is a stumbling block for you, then don't eat meat that's been sacrificed. But it's also correlated to other elements. You can apply it to a person who doesn't drink. If you know the person does not drink and that alcohol is a stumbling block for them, then don't drink in front of them. In the same way, if somebody regards one day as their holy day, then respect that and and allow that to be their holy day. So what should we do? Should we today, should we follow the Sabbath from Friday night at sunset to Saturday at sunset? Well, that's the Jewish Sabbath. That's what they do. Well, so why do Christians celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday? And why Sunday? What is the deal with that? Well, Christians, the early church in Acts, we do see a reference to the first day of the week being the day that they gathered. And the reason for that, again, the Jewish first day of the week is Sunday. There's several reasons for it, but the most obvious one is, is that Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. All the Gospels give that account of the fact that Jesus was resurrected on Sunday. And so they intentionally gathered on Sundays. But the thing is, um, there's no precedent set in the New Testament for having a worship service on Sundays. You look at the new church, they had worship services every day. You look at the Jewish church today, they have synagogue three times a day, every day. But nowhere does it say That for Christians, we are supposed to celebrate the Sabbath. That it's supposed to be on Sunday. Here's another question. Where does it say that it's supposed to be a day of worship? It doesn't. It doesn't. The Old Testament commandment is to keep the day holy as a remembrance to God and what He has done. And to not work on that day. Now this is where it comes back to um, the fact that we're not under the law. So the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, which is founded on the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment, is the Sabbath. All of these, the whole law, all is pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to a new system, to a New Testament, to a new covenant that would be fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, two verses that I want to hit on. You don't need to flip there. We've been flipping to so many. Romans ten four. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The law was a series of rules. In fact, the Jews were so afraid of breaking the law that they created... Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. I'll put it up here in reference, but I believe it's over 600 um, individual rules that are uh, outlined in the Talmud, that are outlined specifically of all of these laws, all these regulations, all these things that they must do in order to um, be right with God. And the challenge, the problem with that is it's impossible. Trying to fulfill the law was impossible. You couldn't do it. No one was perfect. And Jesus came as the perfect person, and in doing so, he did live the perfect life and was perfect and is that sacrificial, spotless lamb, the Passover lamb that we spoke about when we talked about Passover. Galatians 2.16, Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified you cannot be good enough you can't get to heaven by good deeds it's impossible no one but christ alone was good enough and when we talk about the sacrificial system which i've spoken about before sin requires a sacrifice atonement something must be given in place to atone for a a, a verdict in a courtroom sentencing The verdict has been passed, you are guilty, and the sentence is death. And that's where Jesus comes in as our propitiation, which is just a fancy word for in place of. And in doing that, in Jesus doing what he did, he freed us from the law. We don't have to follow it. So do you have to go to church on Sunday? No. You don't have to go to church on Sunday. Do you have to follow the Sabbath law and not do any work On Sunday or on Saturday no you don't you aren't under the law but when we look at the Ten Commandments we do see that there is good reason behind them and we can still use them as a guide they are a get-to not a got-to and so following the Sabbath is a good idea the last Apostle Talk interview I did was with Anthony Chapman And he lived in Israel for 17 years. And one of the things that he talked about is how he misses the Sabbath in Israel. Now, Israel, for the most part, as he spoke about, um, doesn't really believe or practice anymore. They are culturally Jewish, but they don't, uh, it's a cultural thing as opposed to a religious thing. But the entire culture, Of Israel, the people, the Jewish people, whether they believe in Yahweh or not, whether they're following the Jewish law or not, the Sabbath is kept. And Friday night is family night. All the shops close down. Nothing is open. And Saturday is a day, the day during Saturday is a day to to spend with your family and to rest and to not work. Nothing is done. Everything is closed. But Saturday night, Anthony told me, everything opens up. All the shops open up. As soon as sunset hits, everything opens up. Everybody goes out on the town. You go out to dinner. You go and see your friends. Or you go and you do some shopping. It's an interesting element. And the thing that he misses is is that the culture as a whole takes that full 24-hour period as God designed it as a day of rest. So that is my takeaway for you today is, is that should you choose... have a sabbath yes absolutely if you choose to make it on sunday great don't fill it up with tasks that are our work but have it be similar to what god's original design was as a day of rest a day of remembrance for what he has done for you a day to spend with your family if you choose to make it sunday great many of my peers people who are pastors who work in churches they take their Sabbath on another day. Why? Because they're working. They're working. Whether they're uh, leading worship, or they're teaching, or whatever it might be, for some people they have to actually work. Their job requires that they work on Sunday. That's fine. Make it Tuesday. I know a lot of pastors that either make it Monday or Friday. Make it whatever day you want. We are free from the law. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't follow what God has designed as a good thing, established at Genesis as an example. So whatever day you choose, take a day where you don't do any work, where you rest, go for a hike, go do something as a family, but have it be focused on God. If you also worship God in that time through uh, corporate worship, that's great. If you take some quiet time, if you read, whatever it might be, it's between you and God. I know we've gone over in our time. We've gone way over, and I apologize. But sometimes those tangents, um, I just got to talk about them. I just, I, I, I have to let it out. I have to share, and I appreciate those that uh, have stuck with it. Um, there's two more things that I wanted to reference that are just real quick in Exodus 16. Um, the, they're both at the end um, of 16. We have the jar of manna, uh, verse 32. Um, take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come. There's two things that I want to hit on here. One, talking about specifically this jar of manna, but then also an element of of this being said. So they were to keep this jar of manna, which miraculously uh, didn't get um, full of maggots and go rotten, but it was meant to be kept um, with the tablets of the covenant law. That's in verse 34. And you can skip through this really fast and not understand, it's like, okay, they're supposed to be kept with the tablets of the covenant law. What are the tablets of the covenant law? Well, that's the 10 commandments. Those are the stone tablets that Moses is gonna bring down from Mount Sinai. And where are they kept? Well, they're kept in the Ark of the Covenant. These are elements that the the people of um, Israel in the time when this is happening wouldn't have known. So God commands that Moses set aside a jar that has manna in it and put it in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, a few references here. The Ark of the Covenant, we're going to hit on that being created in Exodus 37. Exodus 37, the first nine verses, talks about the creation of the Ark of the Covenant and then what's inside the Ark of the Covenant. This is quiz time for you Bible scholars. There's three things that are in the Ark of the Covenant. What are those three things? The first one, well, we know two. You know two already. The Ten Commandments, the tablets, the as it says here, uh, the tablets of the covenant law. The Ten Commandments were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. What else is in there? A jar, a gold jar that has manna. The final thing is Aaron's staff. Hebrews 9.4 says, The Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and stone tablets of the covenant. Number 17 is the story of Aaron's staff that budded. I'm not gonna explain that. You can go as homework hit uh, number 17. So this is interesting. This is clearly uh, an indicator of when this was written. Another thing that adds to when it was written is verse 36. An Omar was one-tenth of an ephah. So Moses is the author. He's writing this at the end of the desert wanderings uh, just as Israel is about to go into the promised land. So this comment that take a jar and, and put it on an Omar, uh, um, put an Omar of manna in it and place it before the Lord kept for generations to come. Um, and then verse 35, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Okay so, Moses doesn't actually cross into the promised land. So either one of two things is happening here with all of these verses, um, talking about putting something in the Ark of the Covenant, um, talking about um, eating a, a time when they won't eat manna. Either Moses is speaking about what is going to come in faith, which is what I believe he is doing. He's seen the Ark of the Covenant created, and, um, That's not an issue, but an issue of um, knowing that they're not going to eat manna anymore. The other thing that's interesting is that an omar is one-tenth of an ifa. Why is that here? The only reason why this would be here is if the readers in its original author date didn't understand what an omar was. This is another indicator of a period of time, a gap of time, from when it happened to when it was written about. So there's two options here. One, Moses is writing it right at the end of the 40 years and over that 40 year time frame, nobody used omars anymore. They were only using ephahs. And so Moses needed to explain that an omar is just a 10th of an ephah. If you don't know what an omar is, that's what it is. Okay, so that's one explanation. The other explanation, is that it's possible that these last few lines were actually added by a scribe to help explain it to the text after Moses had finished writing. Now, that might get some people up in arms. I don't have a qualm with it either way. I do believe that Moses wrote this, but it does show that there is a gap in time uh, for all of these elements, that Moses is writing this, At the very end of the desert wandering, speaking of something that had happened 40 years ago, but giving some explanation of it. So that wraps up 16. The takeaways that I hope that you take with this. One, manna was a miraculous, supernatural provision from God. And it showed the people of Israel that God provided for them daily. And it's totally applicable for us today. God provides for us daily. We can talk to Him daily. We can pray to Him. Through Jesus' death on the cross, He left so that we could have the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, who now resides in us. We can talk to God anytime we want. God is always there. The other thing, the Sabbath, talk to your wife. Talk to your husband. Decide as a family. You know what? Do we want to practice a Sabbath day? Do we want to have some traditional thing that we do uh, as a family. Uh, It doesn't have to be a whole day. Again, we're not under the law. It could simply be that you make Sunday your day where you go to church, and then you make sure that between that and dinner, you spend as a family. I don't know. Make it your own. Pray on it. Phenomenal stuff. I hope that you guys enjoyed it. Um, Join me in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the examples of the stories of the Old Testament that point to truths in the New Testament. Thank you for giving us a Sabbath. Lord, I pray that every single person that's listening or watching right now, Lord, will pray to you and ask you how they're doing with their Sabbath and if it's something that they should practice, if it is something that would be of benefit to them. I know what you would say to them, but I pray, Lord, that you would give them the courage in their busy, busy schedules to cut out time, specifically set aside to rest in you, to rest in your presence, Thank you, Lord, that you do love us and that you care for us. Thank you, Lord. Prove this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. See you next week. Uh, Thankfully, chapter 17 is much shorter. So hopefully I won't go nearly as long. But we'll see.